for the first time in 15 years, headlines scream of bank failures. First, it was Silicon Valley Bank, then Signature Bank, and other banks have been merged. We're told, don't worry, everything is fine, but it doesn't feel fine. It was just over a year ago in episode 179 that we explained how the elites plan to use a financial crisis to nationalize the economy and introduce CBDC. CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. It's been advertised as programmable money. The programmers can determine when, where, how, and why it is used. In doing so, they can literally control your life. Ever wonder how the World Economic Forum plans to make you own nothing and like it? Join me in the Economic War Room, where we will try to make sense of what's happening and outline our plan of response. When Silicon Valley Bank was closed, it was the 16th largest bank in America. 15 years later, in March 2008, Bear Stearns collapsed. Bear Stearns was an important but smaller global bank back in 2008. There are many differences between Silicon Valley Bank and Bear Stearns, so it's hard to make comparisons in every area but one. Bear Stearns was the first in the financial crisis of 2008, and Silicon Valley Bank is the first in 2023. We don't know just how far that aspect of the analogy will carry out this year, but Bear Stearns does stand as an absolute warning that the worst may be yet to come. Can it happen this year? Will there be a string of closures leading to a full-blown financial crisis? If so, what can we do about it? Before we answer those questions, let's look at Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, Credit Suisse, and the others that seem troubled and find out why. From my view, there were five factors that combined to cause a run on Silicon Valley Bank. It resulted in the bank closure by the FDIC, and those five factors are one, rising interest rates, two, fractional banking, three, a woke approach, four, FDIC deposit insurance, and the potential fifth factor may have been economic warfare, both foreign and domestic. Let's start with rising interest rates. Normally, this is considered good for banks because the rates that banks can earn usually exceed the rate that banks pay depositors. This is known as the spread, and the higher the better. Except for one problem. When interest rates are held exceptionally low for a long period of time, it's hard to make money. And coming out of the 2008 crisis, banks were encouraged to buy and hold U.S. government bonds, considered the safest securities on the planet. They're also considered generally to be risk-free. The problem came in that the rates stayed near zero for so long that bankers became complacent and starting to look for ways to get higher yields. They paid depositors practically nothing for savings, and then they turned around and invested that money in U.S. government bonds paying 2% or more. That was about the only way that they believed they could earn a safe spread, so they stretched for longer bonds with greater yields, and the money piled in. Lots of new money came in from government handouts and stimulus programs, and at Silicon Valley Bank, depositors also got, came in with tech startups and venture capital money. SVB was considered the safe bank, and when a company raised $100 million in their IPO launch, they put the money into Silicon Valley Bank and become part of a club, just like all the successful entrepreneurs and startups before them. It's hip. It's cool to be a customer. You get to go to cool parties, and everybody that you look up to is doing the same thing. Then interest rates started rising. 
By the way, we told you they would on this program back in episodes 124 and 125 titled The Inflation Threat and Things Have Changed, respectively. Those episodes aired in February of 2021 when no one was expecting inflation or higher interest rates, but we were spot on. When interest rates rise, bond prices fall. That's especially true for bonds with a long time to maturity, like 30-year treasury. Now, it makes sense if you think about it. Who wants a 30-year bond paying 2% when the new ones offer 4%? Now, if you hold your bond to maturity, you get all your money back plus the interest that you were promised. But 30 years is a long time to wait. Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of long-dated bonds, and they took a valuation hit when rates rose, and they weren't alone. Now, that by itself didn't sink the bank. The regulators in general seemed willing to keep the bonds at face value on the books and not force a markdown. After all, these were treasury bonds. Plus, interest rates might come down over time. When the year 2023 started, SVB actually became somewhat of a Wall Street darling, at least in January and February. Even Mad Money's Jim Cramer appeared to be a fan of the stock. But something happened on Sunday, mo Sunday morning, March 12th. Kim.com tweeted about a bank run. He said, run on the bank, get your money out, first thing on Monday. And that leads us to the second factor, fractional banking. The fact is that banks do not keep 100% of their deposits in cash on hand. They simply don't. Anyone who's ever watched the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, should understand this. There was a bank run in Bedford Falls, and everyone wanted to get their money out at the same time. Jimmy Stewart's character tried to explain that their deposits in Bailey Brothers we're invested in building houses for borrowers. So let's watch a short clip with this explanation. No, but you're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and, and a hundred others. Now, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're gonna pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you gonna do, foreclose? The term fractional banking refers to the fact that a bank is only required to keep a fraction of its reserves available at any given time on hand for withdrawals. The system works great most of the time and provides important capital for loans and investments. But in the case of a bank run, things fall apart rather quickly. In SVB's case, people panicked and wanted their money out, far more than the bank had available at the time. The fear started because someone determined that the bonds that they held had fallen in value and believed the bank's capital position had weakened too much to cover expected withdrawals. Now, the third factor, it's not entirely connected to the first two, but it's still important. It turns out, as you might expect, that California bank-based is, well, woke. San Francisco woke, in fact. On its own, this would not have brought Silicon Valley Bank down at least not during the Biden administration, where woke is considered more of an asset than a liability. But woke does not help. Let me be clear. Even if the bank weren't overtly woke, a bank run based solely on interest rates could have sparked, well, the problems that they saw. But having said that, Silicon Valley Bank literally spent millions on diversity, equity, inclusion, and ESG policies. Even their employees saw woke becoming a problem, according to interviews that they posted in London's Financial Times. They basically said the work environment was more worried about avoiding microaggressions than making a profit. And these people lived near San Francisco. According to a Newsweek article, Silicon Valley Bank gave $74 million to Black Lives Matter. And that explains a lot. 
but their shareholders would love to have that money back right now. No one's saying that this was the primary cause of their failure, but when the chief risk officer was focused on woke DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, rather than interest rates, you do see a problem. Now, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the fourth and the fifth factors that may have caused the Silicon Valley Bank closure. These may surprise you. Before the break, we were talking about why we see a banking crisis and using Silicon Valley Bank as the example. So far, we've covered how SVB was hurt, one, by inflation and interest rates, two, by the risks of fractional banking, and three, by the whole woke culture. Now, let's look at the other two problems that added to their perfect storm. The fourth factor with SVB has to do with FDIC coverage of deposits. Before 2008, the FDIC would guarantee up to $100,000 on deposit in any insured bank. But during the financial crisis of 08, they raised that amount to $250,000. But in SVB's case, that's a pittance. They had tech companies depositing $100 million into their accounts. Those tech companies felt safe. The money was held in treasury bonds. But the bank run was caused by depositors realizing that they weren't covered 100%. If you had $100 million in the bank and you realize that you might not get back $99,750,000, then you rush to get your money out, and the bank failed. Very quickly, the federal government stepped in and said 100% of all deposits would be covered in this bank. Now, had they said that before the bank run, there might never have been a crisis. But they didn't, and thus they closed Silicon Valley Bank. There are a couple of problems with things that happened. First, it's not entirely clear the government can do what they did. They promised to cover 100% of two banks, but not all banks. Is that fair? And despite President Biden's pinky promise that no taxpayer money would be used to bail out these banks, we don't see how that's entirely possible. The FDIC reserves have limits, and Silicon Valley Bank alone could require more than $100 billion from the reserve fund. Here's a chart from our friend John Malden that he shared in a recent letter to clients. It shows a whopping 94% of SVP bank domestic deposits were uninsured at the end of 2022. But SVB, not alone. There are many other bigger and better known banks that are on this list, but here's the difference. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has now said in advance that the big systemic banks will be 100% covered. That's why there's been such a rush from depositors to move their banks from small banks to big banks. This puts smaller banks at risk. Who wants to keep their money in a smaller bank that may not be 100% covered? Do you see the moral hazard? As a result, ironically, FDIC insurance, because it's nebulous on what's actually covered, has added to the uncertainty. Now, the fifth and the final factor may have been economic warfare, both foreign and domestic. Yes, just as we saw financial terrorism involved in the 2008 collapse, we see signals that it may be happening again. In terms of foreign economic warfare, we know both China and Russia have been on the warpath. Let's be clear. Silicon Valley Bank appeared to have a good working relationship with Chinese startups, and they had a branch in China. At first glance, it would not seem to be in China's interest to let this bank fail. But if you dig deeper, you realize that an attack on SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, could be very much in line with an unrestricted warfare strategy. That's their 1999 How to Destroy a Superpower Handbook. 
It talks a lot about financial warfare. It talks about causing bankruptcy and stock market crashes. And China's spy agency is more than capable of starting rumors that could spark such a run. In fact, China had their own bank runs last year. We know China is getting on a war footing. How better to hurt America than starting a banking crisis? Now, I have no definitive proof that I've seen, but this can't be ruled out. And what better way to double whammy America? You hit the bank that funds our tech industry while you also cause a financial panic. And we know that our adversaries will wait for the time to be right with rising interest rates to exploit the inherent risks of fractional banking. Now, on the domestic front, we've already explained how the progressive left has planned to use a banking crisis to usher in the Great Reset. This was episode 179. It aired in March of 2022. It was titled, Are You Ready for the Next Crisis? Just think about how this empowers the Great Reset. It gives an excuse to nationalize the banks. It also allows the government to pick and choose among which depositors it protects for anything over the FDIC limits. Most importantly, it sets the stage for a central bank digital currency while simultaneously knocking some of our system's support for cryptocurrency. You see, Silicon Valley Bank, like FTX and Signature, had great ties to crypto. Now the Fed can take control of that. I know, Bitcoin's gotten a rush of cash as soon as the SVB failure was announced, and the Fed's noticed. How long do you think it will be before the Fed cuts off other lifelines that they believe connect money to Bitcoin or give people a way to transact in Bitcoin? To understand this point, you have to realize just how hard these great reset folks are trying to crush Bitcoin. And you know they're trying to sneak in laws at the state level. In fact, the Uniform Commercial Code that's something adopted between states so they can do business with one another on the same playing field. Normally, changes to the code are perfunctory. They just go through easily. But this year, there was a sneaky addition that could make governments include CBDC as the only digital currency allowed. Glenn Beck and his team were among the very first to catch this little trick, and they brought it out publicly. Let me read from The Blaze. They say the legislation being used to smuggle in this CBDC language is the Uniform Commercial Code, UCC, a routine piece of legislation passed on the state level that helps standardize commercial and business transactions. However, a new round of UCCs being deliberated right now amongst a group of Republican-led states anticipates the use of electronic money. And that electronic money is defined exclusively as President Biden's CBDC. Let me explain that. The government is using states to adopt central bank digital currency. They want to eliminate Bitcoin and any state-level-led alternatives. It literally declares that only a federal CBDC could be used. This is exactly the plan the elites have to control you. Fortunately, Glenn Beck's microphone is big enough to get some good attention, and Governor Kristi Noem of South Dakota already took notice of this. And in South Dakota, she vetoed the bill for all the right reasons. Kudos to Glenn Beck and Governor Kristi Noem. But that doesn't mean the battle is over. In South Dakota, there are a threat to override her veto, and 14 other Republican states are looking at the same legislation. This is an existential threat to your personal liberty. So there you have it, the threat of a new financial crisis, the threat that China was involved or at least will take advantage of the crisis, and perhaps most frighteningly of all, an effort to use the crisis to usher in the Great Reset, including 100% control of your money. Put it all together and you see what we warned about in the next crisis. This is designed to usher in the Great Recess. 
we told you about this two years ago with inflation and interest rates, and a year ago we told you that they're going to use a financial crisis to control you. But all is not lost. Take hope. We have to take another break. But when we come back, we will share good news. There is a solution emerging in Texas, and with your support, we can make it happen. Welcome back. Let's get down to business. We're an economic war room, not an economic rollover and take it in the pants room. Sure, there are problems, but there are also solutions. Starting at the top, the first problem that led to the financial crisis was inflation driving interest rates higher. So what's the solution? How about gold? Gold is, after all, the original money, according to our founders and according to the Bible. So how did gold fare during the recent inflationary run-up and banking crisis? Take a look at this chart from goldprice.com. It's a six-month chart. As you can see, the banking crisis was good for gold. Its value rose even when there was a crisis in Silicon Valley Bank and inflation. Now, there's no guarantee that this works every time or in the short run, but historically, gold is viewed as a safe haven asset. Now, I'm not recommending gold or giving you advice to buy it. You need a good financial advisor for that. It may not fit your situation. I'm just noting that in times of distress, it's worked and worked well. The second problem that we've talked about is fractional banking and bank runs. What if you could hold your money on deposit somewhere, but they didn't loan it out or invest it? That would end any bank run risk as long as the institution was truly safe. The third problem that we mentioned was wokeness. But what if you could put your money in a place that woke was less likely to penetrate? That might not be California, but maybe Texas? At one time, I worked in California. I had a vacation property there. But starting 20 years ago, we decided to be full-time Texans for a reason. The fourth problem that we mentioned was the FDIC insurance. Now, that's not really a problem. But what if instead of the FDIC having coverage with limits and somebody deciding whether or not that limit covered you, you could have Lloyd's of London insuring 100% of your deposits and you had a sovereign state standing behind you as well. The fifth problem that we mentioned was economic warfare. But what if we could have a safe haven that China could not touch? And on the domestic side, what if we had explicit guarantees in the Constitution that prevented the federal government from meddling in your bank account? The good news, we've been working on a plan that does all of that, and it soon will be up for a vote in the Texas legislature. It's gold and hedged from inflation. It's 100% backed. It's not fractional. A bank run could never touch your deposits. It's in Texas using the Texas Bullion Depository. It doesn't need FDIC coverage, but can get private insurance through Lloyd's of London because the existing bullion depository already has that. And it's insulated from both foreign and domestic economic warfare. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution makes a special provision for this kind of money. If you've watched our episode 224 earlier this year, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We called it the gold bullet for CBDC or the Great Reset. Now, we have a bill in Texas sponsored by two conservative heroes, one in the Texas House and the other in the Texas Senate. Let me read a little from the legislation. It says, a bill to be enacted, an act relating to the establishment of a digital currency backed by gold authorizing a fee. 
that's a little misleading. Actually, it is gold. You're able to transact in gold. Uh, being enacted by the legislature of the state of Texas, subtitle A, title four, government code is amended by adding this. Uh, digital currency, uh, in this chapter, digital currency means the digital gold currency established under this chapter. The comptroller may adopt rules as necessary or convenient to implement this chapter, including ensure the safety of uh, security of the digital currency and preventing fraud. Basically, let me explain that to you. It's a Senate bill written by Brian Hughes in the, in the Senate uh, number 2334 and in the House by Representative Mark DeRazio, House Bill 4903. What it does is it authorizes the comptroller to take the existing Texas bullion depository, to take deposits in, in the form of cash and buy gold with it, or directly in the form of gold, and then make those deposits transactional. So you can take a debit card with you to dinner and pay for your dinner with gold, not with US uh, Treasury notes or not with uh, Federal Reserve bills. It, it is really an opportunity to make transactional gold, Article 1, Section 10, money a reality. I know it works. It works commercially with a company called Glent. I used their card recently in Colorado Springs, and I paid for my dinner with three and a half grams of gold. It was a little over $200. They had no idea I was paying in gold. My friends that I was with had no idea that I could pay for in gold, but the system works. But I don't want my money held in Switzerland, and I certainly don't want it pried on by the federal government through that banking system. I want it held by the state of Texas, and I want it exempt from all those problems. Now, Brian Hughes, who wrote this bill in the Senate, he's a conservative hero. He wrote the heartbeat bill. He wrote this one to restore strict penalties for voter fraud. He wrote this one to require a displaying of In God We Trust posters in schools if they're donated. Uh, he wrote this one that prohibits ESG uh, from Texas investments. He's a hero. Mark uh, DeRazio, he's a freshman, but he's a true conservative with a great business background. Now, through Mark, I've spoken with the Attorney General and the Comptroller's office. I'm telling you, this bill can happen and sh will happen with your support. Brian Hughes went on the Glenn Beck Show, and he talked about it. This is an important legislation. Even Glenn was amazed at how powerful this can be. This can make all the difference, and you can help do something about it. You can be a small ship. Now, I've got a couple of things. We'll put these in the battle plan, but first, check your existing relationship with your bank and broker and so forth using the 1792 exchange tool that we talked about in episode 233 with Paul Fitzpatrick. Look up, see if they're too woke or not. The second thing, Show your support for the Texas Gold Bill. We've launched an Align Act campaign where you can tell the Texas House and Senate, point, click, tell, plus the governor, the uh, lieutenant governor, the speaker, the attorney general, all of them, you can tell them that you want this bill to pass in the state of Texas. Now, don't worry, if you're not taking notes, we're gonna put all of this in the free economic battle plan that comes with this episode. And if you're not signed up to get those, sign up at economicwarroom.com. In that battle plan, you'll get the link to the 1792 exchange tool. You'll get a link to our Line Act campaign. You'll get the full text of this legislation. It's a powerful tool. Now, you should also have a personal financial advisor to work with. I can't give you investment advice, but we are training advisors at Liberty University through the NSIC Institute. And you could have your advisor go to, through that training. You can learn more at nsic.org. 
And when your advisor is trained, they can sit next to you and they can see if this makes sense for your investments, your portfolio, your banking. You need good financial advice. The Bible says, with many advisors, plans succeed. Get a good financial advisor. Also, you should be one of the little ships that make a difference. We talk about the little ships, how at Dunkirk, they got in where the big Navy couldn't and rescued the men from the beaches of Dunkirk. This is your opportunity. You can make that kind of difference. You know, it was the fishing trawlers, the speedboats, uh, the, the sailing vessels. You now have the opportunity to be one of those to help rescue our economy. We're going to summarize all of this in our free economic battle plan at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view it as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.